We're starting into a new series of messages, a discipleship series entitled Simplicity in Life with God. The theme passage is 2 Corinthians chapter 11, which we're going to look at here in just a moment. And the message specifically this evening is Know Your Why. And we're going to focus on Psalm 16. Now, Psalm 16 is one of my favorite psalms, and we've looked at it in recent years a couple of different times. But I will look at it from this perspective in this particular session as we think about how to know our why and focus in on our relationship with God. So we'll begin in 2 Corinthians 11, and then we'll go to Psalm 16. By way of introduction, the medical doctor, Richard Swenson, wrote the books entitled Margin and the Overload Syndrome. I would recommend both because they deal with finding some sense of balance in our lives and managing the things that we have to do. The basic thesis of the margin book is how all of us, or many of us, I should say, that we live in are constantly running up against the limits of every area of our life, whether that be financial or our, our, our health, our time with family, our work, and we tend to run up to the edge of it stress ourselves out and not always accomplish what we want to accomplish and he writes this in part dr swenson does do more and more with less and less and do it faster and faster this is the oft heard management strategy in our profusely overloaded age but what would jesus think can you imagine him flying past the blind beggar sweat dripping off of his brow yelling at his lagging disciples because they were 20 minutes late for the Jericho prayer breakfast? How would he respond if cell phones went off within the assembled crowds at the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus had little tolerance for clutter or complexity. Simply put, he would not be distracted from his mission. Then a quote from A.W. Tozer, Every age has its own characteristics. Right now, we are in an age of religious complexity. The simplicity, which is in Christ, is rarely found among us. This modern world that we live in is complex to the point of frustration. The big idea that I want to share with you is that a simple devotion to God sets us free. Sometimes we overcomplicate things and we overthink our spiritual lives. We overcomplicate them to the point that we lose momentum, perhaps, in our walk with the Lord, or we lose focus because we've got too many different things going on at once. And I want to draw a parallel to simplicity, but then also draw a contrast here in just a moment because it's important that we understand that simplicity does not mean simplistic. And I'll come back to that here in just a second. We begin in the theme passage for the study, and that's 2 Corinthians 11, and I'm going to read the first four verses, and here's what the Scripture says. I wish you would put up with a little foolishness from me. This is Paul writing to the church at Corinth. Yes, do put up with me, for I am because I have promised you in marriage to one husband to present a pure virgin to Christ. But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning... Your minds may be seduced from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if a person comes and preaches another Jesus whom we did not preach, 
or you receive a different spirit which you had not received or a different gospel which you had not accepted you put up with it splendidly a little bit of background about second corinthians 11 paul is defending his apostleship god gave him the assignment to deliver the gospel and god to do so paul wanted to be sure that the believers were not being led astray by false teachers because they were coming into the church trying to confuse the people questioning paul's apostleship questioning the people who were serving with him questioning the message that he was bringing them and he comes to them to speak against this and he tells them something very personal he says i am jealous for you with a godly jealousy his jealousy mirrored god's jealousy for the holiness integrity and purity of the church paul saw himself as a friend of jesus the bridegroom and he knew that all christians will one day stand before jesus so he uses this illustration to make his point in the jewish culture of that day the friend of the bridegroom mentioned also in john 3 had a very important job to procure a husband for the virgin to guard her and to bear testimony to her marital endowments that was the responsibility of the friend of the bridegroom paul's primary concern his fear that he mentions here in verse 3 was that their minds would be corrupted from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to christ that their minds would be confused by something that was not consistent with truth from god you remember the serpent satan the crafty deceptive one he's the one who deceived eve in the garden of eden he's a good example with his deceptive tactics his life uh, uh, to his words to uh, eve you're you're not going to die were surrounded by half truths and deceptions and this is how we too at times are distracted from the purity of devotion to christ is we get off on these tangents and sometimes it's good people who know better sometimes it's people that are distracted sometimes it's because it appeals to their flesh or some other area of their lives and they get distracted and they get off focus and the law of moses implied that it's the father's responsibility to present a pure bride to her betrothed husband and paul is playing the father of the bride in a sense in Christ's betrothal to the church what was his goal his goal was to present God's people to Christ as a pure virgin at the wedding ceremony to protect the people of God to guide the people of God in the truth in his book the doctrine of the atonement the 19th century pastor James Haldane wrote about the ways that churches fused biblical doctrine with modern philosophy he was concerned all the way back in the 19th century that these things were coming together and that the modern philosophy was drawing away from the purity of truth in Christ. In his opening chapter, he makes a case for a pure and undiluted biblical orthodoxy over and against those who would unite Scripture with philosophy. And he wrote this, Truth philosophy consists in our sitting at the feet of Jesus and receiving the truth as he has been pleased to reveal it. The scriptures teach us that the understanding of fallen man is darkened 
and that the Holy Spirit alone can illuminate its inmost recesses with the light of the truth. Here he was writing some 150 years ago and his words still ring true. In his day, it was the Enlightenment philosophies, especially those who were arguing for some type of morality without biblical revelation. And as an evangelist, he saw thousands come to Christ and be instructed in biblical truth, and he wanted to expose the errors that they were then being attacked with. Same thing happens today, where people are led to Christ through the purity of the gospel. They have a pure devotion in their life with Christ, but then something begins to draw them away. To be devout in our faith means that we're dedicated. The chief commitment of our lives should be to God. Our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. He said that is the first and the greatest commandment. Richard Foster said we can live with a steady attention to the voice of the true shepherd. And we can seek first God's kingdom. We can enter into God's righteousness. We can walk cheerfully over the earth and we can live simply and profoundly. Now back to this idea of simplicity not being the same as uh, simplistic. And I want to think about this in terms of simplicity as a couple. And here's what I mean by that. The simplicity of God means that God is not made up of his attributes. So track with me here. That means that he is not Uh, consisting of goodness and mercy and justice and power he is those things so everything that god is is a part of god's being and he is consistently and perfectly and continually those things on a good day i can live and undergo actions and make decisions and do things that are Holy And by my nature, I I am holy because I am in Christ, as are you, if you are in Christ. I can extend kindness. I can extend generosity and any other attribute that we can think of. But those things are not inherently who I am. Yes, I am inherently righteous because I'm in Christ. But these other things that I do, they are things that I do because of who I am. God is because of who he is to say that this is to say it this way every attribute of god is identical and consistent with his essence so god is his essence and we will approach this from the perspective of our relationship with god which in no way diminishes his transcendence when we talk about god and and who he is the transcendence of god means that God is both unknown and unknowable in the sense of his transcendence. Isaiah 55 and verse 8 and 9 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Because God has revealed himself in general and special revelation... The unknown can be known. And herein lies the paradox. God is incomprehensible. He's outside of space and time. Yet he wants us to know him. And because he wants us to know him, he's revealed himself through general and special revelation. 
And in that general and special revelation, he says, yes, I am transcendent. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. There's a mystery about God. If we could just easily explain him in a few sentences tonight, uh, we would not have exhausted the infinity of the depths of his goodness and his character. But at the same time, he's revealed himself to us so that we can know him. So he's transcendent. And when I speak of the simplicity of God as a theological principle, we speak of his character. But we say because God is imminent, he wants us to know him. And that's why he made himself known through the incarnation and through general and special revelation uh, overall. So that's an introduction for us just to think about the concept of simplicity. And I want you to think about another parallel before I get into Psalm 16. And I want you to think about the parallel of spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines sometimes applied are applied as drudgery. Well, I've got to practice the disciplines. And discipline is at times painful. It's not easy. It's inconvenient. It, it pushes back against our flesh. It does those things to root out that selfish nature that we have. But at the same time, there's a beauty in the disciplines because the purpose of the disciplines is not the disciplines. The purpose of the disciplines is to know God. The purpose of the disciplines is to grow in your relationship with God and to advance in your walk with God. And that's the direction that I want to go in with this particular study is how can we focus in our spiritual lives and get rid of the clutter push back against things that are distracting and unhelpful and focus in on what God wants us to focus on. Now for the main passage for this message, I want to spend the balance of our time in Psalm 16. And I want to look at it from the perspective of knowing your why in your relationship with God. So let me read it and then I'll tell you what I mean by knowing your why. Psalm 16 beginning in verse 1 says, Protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. As for the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones. All my delight is in them. The sorrows of those who take another God for themselves will multiply. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood and I will not speak their names with my lips. Verse five, Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me in the pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I will bless the Lord who counsels me even at night when my thoughts trouble me. I always let the Lord guide me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My body also rests securely. For you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. You reveal the path of life to me. In verse 11, in your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. I've entitled this message, Know Your Why. This is important because people tend to be compelled by their reasons for doing something. Most of us need intrinsic motivation. That means that most of us need to be motivated from within. We can be motivated short-term from without. Sometimes guilt is employed in church life wrongly, always, in terms of 
making people feel a heavy burden and I'm not talking about sin or not sin but in terms of laying heavy burdens on people and it's important for us to know why we are motivated to do what we do there was a TED talk that went viral a number of years ago Simon Sinek who addressed this very issue of knowing your why and it became the rage in business and leadership circles the book's been out for several years now but that's the idea is why do we do what we do because if we know our why that's going to determine what we do and how we do it and why we're motivated to do it i believe knowing your why gives purpose and shape to our lives with god i believe knowing your why guides in making life decisions it keeps you motivated because you have a higher purpose it helps you keep going when life is difficult and things are inconvenient maybe things aren't breaking the way that you want them to break you can still keep going because you have a greater purpose knowing your why provides peace because you're going in the direction that the lord is guiding you in you'll note here in psalm 16 that there is a title of sorts or a subscript at least under confidence in the lord that says uh, a miktam now this title also appears in psalm 56 to 60 the honest truth is nobody knows for sure what that word means it may very well mean writing or engraving and the reason that the word is translated here as it is is because they didn't know for sure what it meant it's a hebrew concept but it probably does mean that i think it would fit with what we're looking at here with the idea that the messages would have been valuable enough to be stamped or engraved on tablets so this is a valuable message that is being delivered by the psalmist this psalm is probably best divided into two sections the first being verse one through six which describes how to make the lord your portion the second is verses seven through eleven which shows the satisfaction that comes from making the lord your portion now and forevermore as we noted in studying the psalm before Peter quoted verses 8 through 11 in reference to Christ specifically in Acts chapter 2. And I'm going to come back to that at the end of the message this evening. Now for complexity and simplicity. Complexity means something that is intricate or complicated. Simplicity means plain, natural, easy to understand, and uncomplicated. So what we are aiming for is an uncomplicated life with God from the perspective of our not unnecessarily complicating it. There is nothing simple at all about God. And there is no way, even in these weeks that we're going to spend on it, that we can mine the depths of God because he's infinite. But we do want to pursue simplicity in life with God because what that will help us do is to minimize distractions live with that purpose of why we're doing what we're doing and what we're motivated to do and then that informs our decisions and the direction that we're headed in so i'm going to ask and answer this question in the next few moments that we have together how can we know our why for simplicity in life with god first of all know your why by recognizing that the lord is your portion and your cup of blessing 
as our portion and cup of blessing, he is our protector and he is our refuge. David was the one who's writing this. David faced many dangers in the course of his life. We don't know if he's writing this one in Psalm 16 based on a particular situation that he's dealt with or he's speaking in general about his life. But what do you think about when you think of the word refuge? The word refuge essentially means a safe place. So when we say God is our refuge, we're saying God is our safe place. There's no reason to fear circumstances or people or situations or problems or anything else. You don't have to fear because God is the one who is our refuge. Proverbs 18 and verse 10 says, The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. It's a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. It's easy to think of a physical refuge protecting us, but how can we make God our refuge? This doesn't promise that God will never lead us into or allow us to experience dangerous situations. But rather, it promises that God's presence is always with us. Some people say the best place to be is in the center of God's will, and I agree with that, and it's true. But the safest place is not necessarily in the center of God's will from an earthly perspective. There might be something that God leads us to do that would put us in a more dangerous situation, and then he shows himself faithful in it. But in any regard, he is our portion and our cup of blessing. And because of that, we have nothing good besides the Lord. He's who and what we have. He is our hope in all things. And in verse 1, David addresses God as El, E-L. This is the Hebrew title for the God of infinite strength. In verse 2... The first reference to the Lord is Yahweh. Yahweh is the covenant name of God. It's the same name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. The second reference to Lord means sovereign. Each of these give us some insight into who God is as our portion and our cup of blessing. Psalm 73 and verse 25 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you I desire nothing on earth part of our why is finding our foundation in who the lord is to us as our portion and our cup of blessing but then second you need to know your why by focusing on god as the one who is worthy of our worship to worship god is to recognize his worthiness that's the basic meaning or the definition of worship is worship literally it's ascribing worship credit to the lord for who he is and it's looking godward in all things he makes it clear here that the idolatry of the world always comes up empty and it never satisfies did you notice what he says here in verse four the sorrows of those who take another god for themselves will multiply isn't that ironic? Because people think when, that when they chase after these idols that the world offers, that it's going to bring them joy and satisfaction and whatever else it is that they're searching for. 
some people that David knew had forsaken the living God to chase after idols. David's making a point here that he didn't want anything to do with their pagan ways. And the reason he didn't is because he understood the Lord to be his portion and his cup of blessing. And he understood the Lord to be the one who is worthy of worship. And God is worthy of worship. He's our supply, but he also holds our future in his hands. And he's worthy of worship. And in being worthy of worship, he is our contentment. Look at verse 6. It says, The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places indeed. I have a beautiful inheritance. Now there's some covenant language here because God had a portion of Israel. They determined that by lot to determine the various boundaries. But you remember that God did not assign a land to the Levites or the priests because the Lord said to Aaron in Numbers 18 and verse 20, you shall have no inheritance in their land nor any portion among them. And then now listen to what the Lord says. I am your portion. I am your inheritance among the sons of Israel. So now we have these supporting ideas here that the Lord is our portion. The Lord is our cup of blessing. The Lord is our contentment. And he's the one that we look to for our hope. Similarly, David was the youngest in a family with many siblings. He could expect no inheritance from his family in that regard, but God was a much greater inheritance. And what God promised to David in the covenant relationship was that he would have someone perpetually, eternally sitting on his throne. And of course, we come back again to the messianic hope when we think about that. Our inheritance is in Christ. Paul would write in Ephesians 1 and verse 11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I believe David was content with what God gave him. I also believe that a characteristic of our age is discontentment and boredom and restlessness. People search for that contentment and for that excitement and for that action in life in so many different places. And it always ultimately comes up empty if God's not at the center of it. God is worthy of our worship and we should find our contentment in him. So I just want to ask you a question tonight. Are you content in the Lord with the Lord as your portion and the Lord as your cup of blessing? Nobody else can answer that for you. God knows, but nobody else can answer it. Are you content with who God is and who you are in him? But not only is God our contentment, God is worthy of worship because God is our counsel. In verse 7 it says, I will bless the Lord who counsels me even at night when my thoughts trouble me. We want to ask for a show of hands here, but I would expect that everybody in the room can identify with this particular concept. Doesn't it seem like things are just magnified about 10 times worse after dark? One of the suggestions I'd give to you if you're in a crisis situation and you can afford to do it is just let it go and deal with it when the sun comes up and the reason I say that is because 
Everything seems heavier when it's dark, when you're tired. It's the end of the day. Your thoughts are racing. You're considering all these things that you've got to deal with. And yet here David says, the Lord always counsels me, even at night when my thoughts trouble me. You know the connection that he's making there? He's making the connection to prayer. He's making the connection of taking things to God when we're troubled. Laying our burdens at his feet. Asking him to give us the peace that only he can give us. And when you need guidance, God gives it. Even when you're troubled at night. J.I. Packer said, this then is worship in the largest sense. Petition as well as praise. Preaching as well as prayer. Hearing as well as speaking. Actions as well as words. Obeying as well as offering. Loving people as well as loving God. Know your why by focusing on God as the one who is worthy of worship. And then third and finally, know your why by trusting in God as your guide and your guard. Verse 8, I always let the Lord guide me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. People hire guides for all sorts of things, for treks and tours and uh, different things that they're trying to accomplish whether it's mountaineering or you're in a new city or, or something else that you're into. And they do that for a couple different reasons. A journey can be unpredictable and dangerous, especially if you're thinking about something like going up a mountain that is significant. I'm not talking about a little hike in the woods. I'm talking about like Mount Everest or something, something big. And if you're not familiar with that, you can die. You might run into wildlife. I mean, there's all sorts of things that can happen. All these things that can take place. So a guide has two main functions. To get you where you're going and to get you there safely. If they get you to where you're going and they get you there safely, it doesn't matter a whole lot if you enjoyed it or anything else. They accomplished their purpose. They got you there and they got you there safely. Now, it's a, that much better if they do and things go well. We think here about God as our guide, and David trusted in the Lord to guide him. And I want us to think for a moment about how God guides his people. I believe God guides his people both behind the scenes as well as directly through the Spirit and the Word. I believe God guides his people through his sovereignty and his providence. He orders things in such a way that we may never see all the moving parts that brought us to a particular time or a particular situation or a particular decision in our lives. But just because we've not seen all those parts or understood them or even recognized that God was working through his providence and his sovereignty doesn't mean that he's not. Listen, God is always at work. He's always at work for our good and for his glory. He's always working out his intended purposes. This is the aspect that we cannot see in advance, but only in reverse. We look back and we see how God has guided us and how God has been with us daily in his word and his spirit. And he gives us that direction that we need. Where do we get into trouble? We get into trouble and we think we know better than God. It's particularly true as we think about the Word of God because if 
there's a clear directive in the scripture and and we just don't want to do it or we just decide that it's not important then we're the guide and we're responsible for the outcome but if we fall after what god says and he's our guide then we're going to be moving in the right direction but not only is he our, our guide he is our guard and david knew full well he knew that he had to trust in the lord to take care of him and there's this reference here to the right presents someone's ultimate strength and power the sense of that strength and power is that god gives us confidence when we rest in him that nothing can move us or shake us if we're in god and there is more than survival in view here there is security in life that we would not otherwise have were it not for the presence of the lord he is our guide and he's our guard i want to look at verse 11 now as i'm coming toward a close of this particular message and here's what it says reading it again you reveal the path of life to me and your presence is abundant joy at your right hand are eternal pleasures in the ultimate sense the fulfillment of this is in jesus and his life death burial and resurrection i told you at the outset that peter quotes and applies this in acts chapter 2 in doing so he shows a deep understanding of the work of jesus on the cross that jesus bore our sin the bible says that jesus became sin for us the one who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be the righteousness of god become the righteousness of god in him so he remained the holy one even in his death and it was not possible that he could be held by death this is a reminder of the victory that we have in the one who is our savior there is gladness and joy in the presence of the lord i talked a little bit about this at the end of the message on sunday and i want to reiterate it here maybe uh, emphasize it once again that there should be a gladness and a joy in your life if you are pursuing your relationship with god if that's missing then there's a disconnect god's given you everything that you need pertaining to life and godliness so it's not as though god has been insufficient in what he has provided for you he's provided for you everything that you need so the question then becomes if god has provided for us everything that we need are we finding that in him are we resting in the gladness and the joy that is in his presence there is also hope in the presence of the lord because this is not all there is there's more to come and there's the goodness of god at work in our lives even when the situations aren't great and the path of life for the believer is a present and an eternal blessing i think we've probably de-emphasized heaven and eternity in our age it's not true with all churches of course or all preachers or christians or anything but we're pretty comfortable in this life compared to most of the world and when we get comfortable in this life the things that we have the things that we enjoy the things that we like to do we're not thinking a whole lot about the next one but you know a byproduct of that as well that is unhelpful spiritually we're not thinking about the next life for other people either we're not concerned about lost people 
we got everything we need we already received the gospel we already have our heaven secured but what about the people that are lost are we burdened and broken for those who don't know the Lord are we living in such a way that we're anticipating if it's true and it is because the Bible teaches it that eternity is forever and this life is just a vapor then where should our ultimate emphasis be should it be on the vapor or should it be on eternity well it's both but it's one with an eye on the other it's one focusing on the ultimate outcome of the whole deal and that drives us back to our why and our understanding of the path that the lord has us on so the christian life's not problem free but it is blessed and secure my hope for us as we work our way through this study is that we would be reminded of some of these spiritual disciplines and the importance of life with god and this statement came to mind i'm going to share this and then i'm going to close in prayer i and i wrote this based on psalm 16 i want to walk the path of life with abundant joy and experience eternal pleasures in the presence of god in heaven let me say that again i want to walk the path of life with abundant joy and experience eternal pleasures in the presence of God in heaven. What might those eternal pleasures in the presence of God in heaven be? In part, we're going to see Jesus face to face. We'll receive glorified bodies that aren't subject to being broken down and sick and needy. We'll be free from sin. I can say that and I can't really even understand what that even means. I, I know what it means conceptually, but just to think about being in a place free from sin. We'll see loved ones who've gone on ahead of us who also believed in the gospel, who trusted in Christ. And I've just scratched the surface of what the blessings of eternity will be like. That should give us confidence and joy and hope as we walk this path of life and as we look forward to those eternal pleasures with God in heaven. Let's bow our heads together as we pray.